Well, it's good to be talking about love. It's Valentine's Day. <clears throat> you, you'll, you'll permit me to be a bit of a curmudgeon, won't you? You do? <laughs> it sounded like there were more yeses than noes, so I'm going to go for it. Um, <laughs> I don't like Valentine's Day. I don't. I've never liked it since I was a kid. I can remember my elementary school teachers handing out these cards. They had to fill one out for every kid in the class. And they had to fill one out for me, every kid in the class. Even the kid who punched me the week before, I had to fill out a Valentine's Day card that said, be mine on it. I, I wasn't interested in that at all. And when everybody gets one, isn't that sort of like giving out a trophy to everybody on the team? I, it sort of loses its meaning when it's just carpet bombing Valentine's cards like that, right? I, I'm sorry. It seems to me Valentine's is just created by people who want to make a lot of money off of it, including Brock's Candies, who somehow, I bought this, yes, uh, who want, somehow want want to convince people that somehow it's good to express your love through these nasty little candies. I read the, read the ingredients back here. What do you think it, the main ingredient is? Sugar. Uh, sugar. Corn syrup, corn starch, which are just, it means sugar, sugar, sugar. Glycerin, gelatin, sugar, sugar. Artificial flavors, no. And then red dye three, yellow dye five, yellow dye six, yellow blue one, Red 40. And then this is hilarious to me. Talk about the age we live in. And I get allergies and stuff, but, but they have to warn you that this was made in a facility where milk, tree nuts, peanuts are made as well. So it's like, be careful. It was made where things that actually have nutritional value are made. <laughs> you don't want to get it too close because you might get a little nut problem there. Uh, so... I, the only thing worse than the candies are the ridiculous messages on these candies. I have some here for you. you a lot of time you can't even read it. This one just says, LOL. <laughs> it's like, you give that to somebody, it's like, that's insulting, isn't it? LOL. You laugh out loud at me? Uh, which, by the way, isn't it interesting that LOL actually has lost its ability to communicate anything? Actually, I, if you put LOL now, it's like, that's all you're going to give me? It's just an LOL? Nothing more than that? Um, not that I know. But, <laughs> sup, babe? <laughs> is that? So ridiculous. No way. Now, is that... <laughs> Is that no way, or is that no way? I mean, it's hard to know how you're supposed to say this. Get real. That's another one that's so potentially insulting, right? Maybe that's the purpose of these. Uh, somebody gives you a be mine, and you give them a get real right back. Again, yes, dear. Now, is this yes, dear, or yes, dear? I mean, it, it all depends on how you say it, right? It's very confusing. They send all kind of mixed messages. Be true. Well, that's a good one. That's actually what our sermon's about today. <laughs> Love being true. Soulmate. Oh, that's nice. I wonder what <laughs> they mean by that. Dare ya. Wink, wink. Come on. 
Isn't it amazing how Valentine's Day, which is the holiday of love, can give you a pretty cheesy idea of love? And if you're an elementary school teacher and you have your kids fill out all those little Valentine's cards, you, you, be, you go be you. But I, I don't get it. My son Sam, after, he did those cards more than homework this week. It's like, oh, oh Dad, how do you spell Abby? Uh, it's just, I don't even know who she is, but I want her to be mine, right? Uh, it's fine. But listen, listen, my concern is, is that, first of all, romantic love, and there's a place for that, I would say even biblically, but, but then even that idea gets so cheapened and so trivialized so easily. And, and things like Valentine's Day can make you think about love as primarily little cards and candies and flowers, and, and love is so profoundly deeper than all of that, even in human history. What love usually is called, what we mean by pretty shallow romantic ideas of love. Not that there's not a place for, for romance, but even that, even that place is, is not the primary thing we're talking about when we talk about love from God's perspective. It's really unfortunate that love has been reduced to candies and cards and flowers and romantic flutteries in your gut, but, but not what God really wants us to think about when you think about love. And so, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to conclude chapter 1 and jump into chapter 2 this morning. And the, the whole point of this passage is true love. True love, one of the, one of the candies. True love, there it is. Um, but we're going to find out what that really means from God's perspective this morning. So let me pray as we go to the word in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 22, Lord, help us as we dive into your word now to maybe change, definitely solidify and deepen our understanding of what true love is and looks like. And Lord, I pray that it be more than understanding, but understanding that leads to love in our relationships, especially when it's hard. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Peter, we're preaching through the book of 1 Peter. Today we're going to blow right through that chapter division. You know, verse and chapter divisions were added much later and sometimes very poorly. And so sometimes it's a good idea to ignore them. And that's what we'll do this morning uh, in, in the chapter division here. But we'll, we'll start reading now at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, and read through chapter 2, verse 3. You ready? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news 
that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So good! Let's, let's work our way through this passage. The first thing I want you to realize is, it's already been highlighted, gospel transformation leads to true love. True love. We're trying to combat false conceptions of love, distorted, perverted, diluted conceptions of love, insufficient understandings of love which abound. You want to talk about a word that needs definition. Have you ever played that game at a wedding reception where your table tries to come up with as many songs as you can with the word love in them? I remember the first time I played that. I thought we'd come up with four or five. We realized after a little while we could do it all day. It's amazing how many pop songs have the word love in them, but we don't define it very often. And that's what we need to make sure we do today. What we're being told here is that earnest love from the heart is a necessary distinctive of Christians. The church should be known by its love. Jesus couldn't be more clear on this. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know you're my disciples. The hallmark of the disciple, the follower of Jesus, if you have love for one another. So there is a primary focal point of this love for one another. That's where our love for the world starts. It doesn't stop with our love for one another, but it starts there. I say to my kids all the time, uh, how can we love others if we don't love each other? How can we step outside this house and go to church or go to school or into the neighborhood and seek to love other people if we're not doing it ourselves? And so we've got to think about this as the family of God. Just like judgment starts with the household of faith, as the Bible says, so does love. There is a primacy of love among the people of God, among the church. And he's saying what Kenny said last week. This is what Christians do. That Geico phrase, it's what you do. That's a great idea for us. That this is who you are now, so this is what you do now. If you're a Christian, you love. That's what you do now for a living. And we grab a hold of that. Look what he says in just chapter 2, verse 17, just a few verses later. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood. The word here for love is the the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, this familial love, this love of family that's got a commitment and a loyalty for life. And what he's saying is, is all your relationships need to be right in the church. They must be sincere and free from false motives and pretense. And I need to pause and tell you right now that as one of the pastors at Grace, we've been here going on 17 years, and I am 
just brought to tears often at the way this church loves each other. I can tell you time after time the way people have loved our family and the way I've been able to watch this flock love each other. It's an astounding thing. People, you know, when people say things like, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, they're just, I just want to say, well, you really need to come and check out my church then. Because there are people loving each other in ways that will astound you. And so there's something wonderful about that. But like Peter, who is confident of God's work in the people he's writing to as well, but he's saying, now, now keep going. Keep living up to what you've already attained. But we've got to stop here and we've got to define love or our brains and hearts will be invaded by all kinds of mixed messages and false conceptions. And so I can't think of a better way to define God's love than going over to 1 John chapter 4. And I said God's love because that's the source of all love. So if you just go a few pages over to 1 John chapter 4, we will get the definition of love and we'll see it's grounded in God's love and then all other true love is grounded in God. 1 John 4, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Now, Peter's dear friend John, one of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, sounds a whole lot like his friend Peter. Peter and John are coming out of the same playbook here. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the one who takes the hit for us, the one who takes on the wrath and judgment of God in our place for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's ultimately displayed the way he wants in our lives, in other words. So what's love? Well, you will find no clearer picture of it than God so loving a world that it hated him that he sent his most precious son into our world and became one of us and walked our streets and took our pain and took our sin. That's love when God sends his son and the son joyfully, lovingly submits to that will of the father and the spirit makes it all happen. That intra-trinitarian love that had gone on for all of eternity now is spilled out in creation in God's redeeming work as he saves us from our own sin. That's what love is. You should look nowhere else or more to define love than that. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And whoever believes in him will never die, but have eternal life. That's how we define love. 
And so love then has got to be this purposeful. God didn't just do random acts of kindness. There's really this idea that a random act of kindness is somehow better than a planned one. And I think there's such a value on my gut that if it just flows from my gut, that's somehow better. But how about if it flows from my gut to plan to love in specific and strategic ways? So it's a purposeful commitment. This is what we're about. Even when we fail, even when we wane in our effort, even when we lack the resources because we're not connected to the resource God himself enough, we are nevertheless committed to this thing called love. And what is it? Well, it's what we see in Jesus. Self-sacrificial giving of oneself for the good of another. The beauty of this is the God of Christianity was actually capable of doing this for all of eternity before creation even existed. Because among Father, Son, and Spirit, this is love. And that's why God can be love, not dependent on a creation to love. But when he does create, he does it out of an act of love to share who he is in creation. And then when he redeems, it flows out of a heart of love to restore what was been tragically lost in our sin in the fall. And so this all comes about out of our hearts when we receive God's love into our hearts and that reception comes through the word. That's what this passage wants us to understand. In some ways, this entire letter is continually unpacking chapter one, verse three, which is, blessed be, so there's praise, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. That's what Rick said. So this flows from being born again. That's what it says again in our passage this morning in verse 23. Since you've been born again, of not, not perishable seed, but imperishable, then do these things live this way. Because you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have tremendous hope based on God's amazing grace and the fact that he has given us new life in Christ. We turn from our death to his life. I, I preached Mo Salgado's grandmother's funeral right here yesterday. And, and we talked about death, the reality of death. We didn't try to use euphemisms and talk around it and just come up with pithy expressions to make ourselves feel better. We use death the way God wants us to, to think about our own, to think about our own mortality, to think about the pain in this world that we need a solution to, and God has provided that solution. He's given us new life and a living hope that flows out of that new life because Jesus rose from the dead. Hope is a massive theme here. You notice in verse three, we have a living hope. That, that's what we've been given, a hope that is living. We have a hope in our passage today that we have faith and hope in verse 21 that undergirds our lives. We're believers in God in verse 21 of chapter one who raised, God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. That's 
the source of this hope. This is a hope we have. So the love we have is grounded in the hope we have, which is grounded in the life we have. So here's how it goes. Word leads to experiencing God and the gospel and a hope, and we see in the previous passage a holiness and a fear. Did you see those themes in last week's sermon? So it's not just love that's vague and abstract and and sentimental only, but it's holy love, verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You should be holy for I am holy. That's what's written. And so this is holy love. This is love like God's love who is holy. This is the love of those hagioi, those saints who have been set apart and are distinctively different than those who haven't been. We're the holy ones. We're the ones like God set apart from sin and evil and distinct from the world in the way it hates and loves in shallow, incomplete ways. So we have gospel hope, which leads to gospel love. It's, it's a process we, we've all gone through for those of us who know Christ, and it can be hard work to live this out, but that's the exhortation of this morning. But we, we need to pay attention what the real exhortation is, and so we'll get there. We believe in the promises of God and obey the commands of God, and we get on with it. That's, that's what the exhortation, get on with it. Get on with being who you are now. On with it. Here we go. Uh, I had a coach used to say, get on your horse. Uh, yeah, here we go. We're going. We're, we're engaging this battle. We're engaging this journey. This is the ideal. This is the assumed way we should live. So get on with it. And I'm so grateful, as I said, that so many in this church get on with it so beautifully. And we're told to do this earnestly. Our love should be earnest. See what it says? Having purified your souls. So our souls have been made pure by God and have an ongoing purity by God, having purified your souls, by obedience to the truth. Here's how this all comes about, this love comes about. We obey the truth. I think this is the truth mostly, centrally, of God in Christ, in the good news of his redeeming work in Jesus. So obedience to the truth, primarily of the gospel, leads to a sincere, not a fake, not a superficial, but a sincere familial brotherly love. Isn't it amazing that the Bible says Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers? This amazing familial adoptive language. Because his sonship becomes our sonship. We become children of God, co-heirs with Christ now, the eternal son. So our souls have been purified by God. This leads to a solid, true brotherly love, and so we are to earnestly love one another from a pure heart. Earnestly love one another from a pure heart. Earnestness. Oh, do we need earnestness. Our culture is amazingly insincere and sarcastic 
and ironic and apathetic. It's, it's like most humor you hear is dripping with cynicism and sarcasm. John Stewart has made an entire career on cynical, dripping, sarcastic humor. Uh, it's, it's amazing how that's the way to communicate now. Politicians are, are, are in, stepping in line with this too, and it's, it's, just, it's just hateful the way we talk to each other. And there's an earnestness we're called to. Earnestness just means like you mean it. Like you're serious about it. This is, this is something you're doing earnestly, not haphazardly or apathetically or in your spare time. But no, this is what you're about. Loving real people in real places at real time with an earnestness. You're serious about loving people from a pure heart, not with all kinds of polluted mixed motives. And again, since you've been born again, and since that seed that has brought you into life isn't going anywhere, it's imperishable because it comes from an imperishable God, well, then you have hope to do it. And this all comes through what? The living and abiding word of God. And then he contrasts God's living and abiding and strong and eternal word with the frailty, the transience, the brevity of human life and existence comparing our lives to that of grass and flowers, which may be nice and pretty for a day or two or five, but the sun scorches it and it dies. If you have a lawn, you know what I'm talking about. It's just a daily battle to keep it looking decent if you care at all. There's something just wired into creation where it's falling apart. And, and God says, yes, everything around you is dying, but not me and not my word. And not the seed that's been implanted in you through my word. And this gives us the tremendous hope that we have in the gospel. Uh, our minds have now been purified. Our sinful desires have been told to depart by the spirit of God. And they're on, they're on their way out and we need to give them a swift kick as they go. And so we trust in God and we depend on him and we are serious about this. Serious about growing in spiritual maturity. Serious about growing in love for people who we may not easily love at all and would never choose to be friends with otherwise if they weren't fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that doesn't really happen until you commit to a local church. Well, it happens in your family, but, but when, you, when you jump in, because you don't get to pick them either. But the church is filled with people you would never know and certainly not be friends with if they weren't brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Jesus becomes our defining reality, not our hobbies, not our personalities, not our preferences in taste and music or fashion or anything else. Not the shallow things that the, the world finds commonality in, but Jesus becomes this commonality for us. So we get serious about displaying this to a world that desperately needs to see that kind of love that doesn't come from shallow, trivial commonalities, but from an enduring gospel of Jesus Christ where we have deep, earnest, familial love that flows out of our maturity that is real maturity because of the word. 
And please know this doesn't depend then on feeling like it or, or having had enough sleep or someone actually coming around and admitting all their faults or finally stop doing that annoying thing that drives you crazy or acting just the way you'd like them to. We have all sorts of conditions for when love is justified. Deep down, we know there are none, and so we make up expressions like, well, I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. As if that's how God's love is. Do you think that's how God loves you? Well, I have to love you, but I don't like you. I mean, I said I'll love you forever, so I'm stuck. No, he he loves you with the affection of a father of a husband for a wife. He loves you as a a shepherd and and a king who draws you near. He loves that way and calls us to love, not begrudgingly, not, oh, well, I'm stuck. No, and and it can be that way when we start out being serious about it, and there often is a process of getting to the point where it's heartfelt affection, but we can't be satisfied without that. We can't say it's love like God's until you start to feel it from the heart. Yes, and it may take a while, and it may take a process, and it may take difficult uh, commitment to that process, but we are people who want to love people the way God does. There are no excuses. There may be reasons There may be things we can empathize with, but there are never reasons for the true believer not to love, ever. We're in it for the long haul. You know, one of the books we have uh, our young, our engaged couples class read, it it has has a line that says, in the wedding vows, they think it should say, I'm a sinner and I'm yours for life. We're committed to each other. Yes, we'll hurt each other. Yes, we'll disappoint one another. And when that happens, will you just go to the next place until it happens again? Think of the things that divide Christians today. Style of music. A niche ministry that I want to have. Whatever it is, the things that divide us are just tragic. But when there's this sort of love, it will make the world stand up and take notice. When we have no other reason to love the way we do but the fact that we've been loved by Christ. I'm so grateful for the ways I've seen over and over again. I can't tell you what it's like to go into a meeting of a brother and a brother or a sister and a sister or a husband and wife when I know that they know there are no excuses ultimately. It's a whole different deal when you're not convinced somebody actually gets it. But when you go to a meeting knowing that people have no option but to love and to be committed to reconciliation, it's an entirely different scenario. It's not lacking difficulty, but it's a different world. And we are called to love in a way that defies human statistics and expectations. And in order to get there, we've got to get rid of any idea that we're stuck with the heart we have. That our DNA or our bad parenting or our family experience or a mean coach or 
a temperament or a personality type or uh, an addiction of some kind or some sin that we assume is going to keep us in its grip forever or statistics or the latest psychological finding has doomed you to be like you are in lacking love for someone. You're not stuck. There, There is such a strong idea that that's just how you are. No, God is a transforming God. He's a God who loves to change us, and that can be a brutally difficult process sometimes, but it's a process that he's committed to, so it's a process we should be committed to. No matter what. No matter what, because that's how he loves, no matter what. And this is an affectionate love that we're committed to having even though, as I said, it may take time to get there. So what we do then is rid ourselves of all the unloving things like malice. Just being mean. The mean thing about malice is unlike just hatred, it's often disguised as kindness. So malice is this desire to hurt others while all the while appearing like you're not. Or deceit is just lying, a deliberate attempt to mislead people. Just lying. Notice it's contrasted with Jesus' lack of deceit in chapter 222. No deceit, we're told, was found in his mouth. Christians then are free from hypocrisy. Realize all these nouns that I've been talking about are in the plural. They're malices. They're they're hypocrisies. In other words, every kind of this thing, get rid of it. Whatever this may be looking like or showing up as in your life, get rid of it. It's this exhaustive way of talking about these sinful attitudes. And notice they're mostly attitudes that end up showing up in actions and words. And then slander, publicly, literally uh, talking down someone, talking them down, bringing them down in the way you talk about them. Usually so you in the eyes of the people you're talking to will go above them. That's a basic human dynamic, isn't it? I'm better. Me, I'm better. Look at me, not them. Envy. No, see, love seeks good. It longs for good. It wants the good of others. I heard a friend of mine, Tom Steffen, describe this way. It struck me so strongly. Somebody said, you know, Tom is one of those rare people who really views the good of another as if it were his own. Not as a, a source of saying, well, why is he getting that? Or why can't I? Or I'm just, or, or, no envy, no spite, no vindictiveness, no vengefulness. He rejoices in the good of another as if it were his own good. There's no difference in his mind and heart. Love seeks the good of another. And what brings this all about? The word of God. The word of God brings this about. This word that, as we saw, is lasting and permanent and strong and provides the nourishment you need, unlike those candies. And so we're told then, not just to love in this passage, but to long for the source of the love. The source of the love is the word. A simple word. Doing what we're doing right now. Opening our Bibles, going to the Word, listening to the Word, paying attention to it, reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, reading it in services, saturating our sung corporate worship with it. The Word brings a knowledge of God, an experience of God in the gospel of God, which leads to fear and holiness and hope that leads to love. 
If you disconnect the love from all those other things, you're missing true biblical godly love. This love is impossible without nourishment. This pure milk, as we said, is unpolluted, unadulterated, unfiltered. It doesn't need to be filtered. As Ed Clowney says, the milk of God's word needs no preservatives and has no additives. And that's what we should long for. Not the word of God, the milk of the word that has got the stuff we'd like in there that isn't there. Or in some way needs preservative. It doesn't. We can trust it. Have you ever taken a swig of milk that's gone bad? Yes, it's horrible, right? You never need to fear that with the word of God. Sometimes we go to the word like that. Oh, what am I going to find here? No, never will it be anything but pure milk for you. So then we can grow up into salvation. That's why we need to be devoted to the word in the the simplicity of that. So that the word of Christ will dwell in us richly. And so we're purified by it and understand God through it. The word is something we should long for, and we don't always. I don't always. And so we pray, Lord, make me addicted to your word. Make me unable to live without it. This is one of those addictions that's good and right. To to need it desperately, realizing you're unable to live without it. Ed Clowney says, for a baby, milk is not a fringe benefit. No, it's an essential. It's something we absolutely and desperately need. And we need to be people of the word who are transformed by it, never stuck in the way our life has been. And the last thing I want to say, in our elder retreat, we talked about what we longed for for our church. And one of them was that our our people are ingesting the word more and then that word is overflowing to the people in our lives, that we minister to one another and then especially take that to another level and proclaim that word, speak that word to people in our lives who don't know Christ from the word, that we see people in our church through the witness of the word from our flock to other people coming to a new understanding of Jesus in this way and then their lives are transformed as well. It's what we long for, pray for. Let's together long for the pure milk of the word so that we can know God, taste and see that he is good and then have lives of love that flow from that. Help us, Lord. In this, we are so easily distracted, satisfied with shallow, trivial notions of things like love. Help us get beyond the surface to the core. Help us to get to Christ so that we can Know how loved we are in him and love freely and recklessly because of it. And we pray this in his name. Amen.